everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. For as long as we've been producing this podcast, my ambition has been to introduce you to brilliant people who have something unique and valuable to share and whose insights could, in some meaningful way, help elevate your leadership effectiveness. And almost to a person, I've hand-selected all my guests, not just to keep the quality high, but also because I want you as a listener to know how intentional I am, almost in hopes that one day you'll simply come to instinctively trust that whomever comes on will be worth your time and energy. And another goal I've had for this podcast is to discuss leadership from non-basic dimensions. That's to say, I want guests whose research transcends management and who can provide you with informed guidance on how human beings operate. I want to take you off the beaten path and help strengthen you in ways you might not otherwise have known you even needed strengthening. And those objectives align perfectly to today's show, where I've invited a London psychotherapist to counsel us all. Her new book, The Man Who Mistook His Job for His Life, How to Thrive While Leaving Your Emotional Baggage Behind, is already a global bestseller. You probably don't realize this, but every working day, you replay and reenact conflicts, dynamics, and relationships from your past. We spent 18 or more formative years living with our family and parents and building our personality. And some of that experience unconsciously influences our behavior at work. Without even realizing it, we act on repressed experiences rather than actual realities. And this behavior is very often the source of confusion and even friction at work. And it's not just us. Everyone around us is unknowingly operating out of their childhood selves when it comes to work. We're all trapped in our upbringings and the patterns of behavior that we learn while growing up. And whether it's confusing a boss with a parent, avoiding conflict because of past squabbles with siblings, or suffering from imposter syndrome because of the way your family responded to success, we're all in the same boat. And I've just finished recording this wonderful episode with Naomi Shragai, and she tells a story about a former patient who worked tirelessly to please his former CEO, only to have it pointed out by Naomi that who he was really trying to please and impress all along was his harsh and critical mother, not his boss. Once made aware of this, he was free to fully reinvent his entire career. Naomi joins us to share more stories like these and mostly to explain how you can begin work on discovering your own personal triggers and to successfully managing them so you don't undermine your own performance. The point is, you want to understand your colleagues' irrational behavior, you must first understand your own. And with that as a preface, let me welcome you to the podcast, Naomi Shragai. Hi. Hi. Nice to meet you. Nice to talk to you across the pond. And I very much enjoyed your book and looking forward to talking to you about it. And your fundamental premise is that we all have this false notion that work is predominantly a rational and objective world that's free of emotions. And not only that, but most of us are unaware of how much our own behavior and the behavior we see in others is driven by feelings and specifically feelings held over from childhood experiences. 
And so what I want to do is I want to dive in and explore this because I've long understood that most people are really operating out of their childhood selves a lot of the time, whether they realize that or not. And I think that's what your book really brought out for me is, yes, we do. And you need to know this and you need to understand it, because if you can understand it, you not only understand your own behavior and what's driving it and motivating it, but you also understand what's driving and motivating the performance of people around you, which I think is important. So long preamble to asking you the question, tell us how you discovered this, why we believe we're rational creatures, and what do you want our audience to really take away from your work? Right. Well, the main thing I think I'd like people to appreciate from my work is that we all operate from our unconscious much more than we know. So the difficulty is, is when our early experiences remain in our unconscious, we have little to no control over them. So my work is very much about encouraging people to bring their unconscious motivations to conscious awareness. That's where we can gain some conscious control over these processes. You know, otherwise the unconscious can just wreak havoc in our lives. You know, I just want to say that most of us are aware of our conscious motivations at work. Okay, we want to succeed. We want to grow and develop clearly. And we want for our businesses to do well. But, you know, we also bring to work our unconscious, and our unconscious has a completely different agenda to it. It is not about being financially successful or encouraging our growth. It's rather about attempting to resolve, like, early and historic conflicts from our childhoods. You know, perhaps it's also about attempting to try to meet the needs which were neglected perhaps in our early lives or to act out early dramas which haven't been resolved in the past. So it's precisely when our conscious desires are in conflict with our unconscious impulses that tension and confusion erupts. So shall I give you an example? Please do. Yeah, okay. Great. So let's say at work, your job might require that you take risks, as is often the case, or that you are employed to be creative and innovative in your approach. And while all this might seem to be reasonable to you, your unconscious might be more preoccupied with keeping you safe emotionally, keeping you at a distance from harm's way. So in that way, your unconscious might hold you back from expressing your ideas because the unconscious fears that exposing your ideas might, say, lead to rejection or exclusion or even harm. So although the unconscious is not at all rational, if it's left unchecked, your unconscious has a much more profound influence on your decisions and your motivations and behavior than you realize. So one thing I tell people a lot is not to underestimate the power of your imagination. In other words, what you imagine can feel as powerful or even more so than reality. How do you apply that? Well, you know, if you imagine at work, for example, that you are making mistakes, even though you're not making mistakes, you could be doing a really, really good job. But you imagine that you're making a lot of mistakes and you can be imagining that people are spotting your mistakes. So your imagination can overtake reality. It can weigh more heavily. And this is precisely why behavior at the work sometimes appears so irrational at work. So imagine mistakes, for example, can feel as real 
or sometimes more real than actual mistakes. Or you might imagine that people are against you when in fact they're attempting to support you. Well, I'm wondering, as you talk about this, if one of the recommendations, Naomi, is to make sure that when we are in an imaginary state, when we are imagining what's happening in real time, are you encouraging us to ensure that that's really positive, that that's supportive? Because are we manifesting that? Well, no, what I'm encouraging people to do is to recognize when their perceptions are coming from their internal worlds and that they perhaps don't always match the reality of what's actually happening. So I'm encouraging people to learn ways to separate their unconscious from their conscious, their past from their present, essentially, in the workplace. So I think people need to recognize from time to time if their feelings, if their strong feelings are trustworthy, you know, so if they feel people are against them in the workplace, as some people might do, you know, some people might exhibit quite paranoid feelings and think, oh my God, the boss is against me, when he's actually just micromanaging you because he's worried about the outcome. But the feeling can be, oh my God, he has a close eye on me. He's against me. He's thinking of sacking me. So sometimes these irrational paranoid thoughts can be located from our early experiences of what I'm suggesting and really have no place in the here and now. All right, let's dig into that. In your book, you write that acting on repressed experiences rather than actual realities is so often the source of confusion and function at work. So that sort of summarizes what you're saying right now. That's right. So based on this, I have four questions for you. We'll take them one at a time. And by asking you these, Naomi, I think we're going to nail down what you're really saying. How well do you believe most workplace leaders even understand themselves? What motivates them? And even what childhood experiences become regular triggers for them? Your assessment of most people. Well, you know, it's so hard to generalize, but and I will say, I certainly hope, we all hope that most leaders have insight into themselves. You know, self-awareness is so crucial for leadership for so many ways. And some people, of course, are just natural leaders. But let's talk for a moment uh, about those leaders, oh, by those leaders on the more extreme end of narcissism. For an example, now all leaders have to have a degree of narcissism because that's what gives people the self-belief to promote themselves, to get people behind them. It's certainly important. It's certainly crucial. But I'm talking about those on the most extreme end. Now, I would say that these people are examples of people that defending themselves against very early experiences of harm or neglect. So oftentimes, these sorts of leaders have an excessive need to be admired, okay? And we can understand their craving for admiration. It can be understood as partially a kind of a defense against deeper feelings of helplessness that they might have experienced in their early lives, perhaps as early as infancy, when they might have experienced abandonment or neglect or even harm by their parents or caregivers, whoever it might be. And in order to defend against these very early traumatic feelings of helplessness, what they crave in the workplace is to be seen as better than they are. So they need a constant feeding of affirmation and admiration. And this is to distance themselves from feelings, deeper feelings of shame and inadequacy that they're still struggling with in adulthood. So these feelings that they 
cannot tolerate, the admiration tends to lessen these feelings. Do you have to be highly narcissistic to have those feelings? In other words, is that a common humanity? Uh, you, do, you, do you have to be narcissistic to have feelings of shame? Is that, is that the question? In inadequacy. Oh, you know. no, 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 by no means. I mean, there are, all, there are many, many, many reasons why people struggle with feelings of shame and inadequacy. In fact, I think most, all of us to some degree have some feelings or experiences of shame. And I think it's more a matter of uh, degrees, really, than having or not having these feelings. But what I would say is those leaders on the extreme end of the narcissistic spectrum suffer from stronger feelings of shame and helplessness. And so they need to defend against those feelings with this constant craving for admiration. So how do any of us discover the childhood experiences that still consistently and, as you say, unconsciously influence us at work? And by the way, the idea of our inner child has uh, some sappy references and so can you pin down that this is like legitimate, that we are influenced by how we were raised and the experience that we have, and that we're unconsciously bringing some of that, some of the more perhaps darker experiences, painful experiences of our childhood upbringings into our adult behavior? Well, of course, this has always been known within psychotherapy and particularly more psychoanalytic schools of thought. This is what Sigmund Freud wrote about and Carl Jung and all the great psychoanalysts and psychotherapists of our time have always known that our early unconscious lives play a part. You know, our earliest experiences, particularly in our families with our parents or early caregivers, they create a kind of a template in our minds. So is how we perceive the outside world and how we perceive relationships in our lives. So, you know, in the workplace, it's quite usual that we confuse our colleagues or bosses, clients even, underlings especially, for people in our early lives. So what happens, for example, is at work, we're met with issues, let's say, of dependency. You know, we depend on our bosses, but of course, what people don't always realize is that we also depend on our underlings. So if you're a manager or a leader, you're dependent on people below you to do their job so that it will reflect well on you. So issues of dependency come into play at all levels of work. We depend on our clients, for example. So it is often the case that those points of dependency at workplace will trigger feelings in our earliest dependencies. So if in our early lives, we knew that we could trust and count on people to have our best interests at heart, for example, to care for us and uh, look after us and have our backs, really, then we're much more likely to believe that people will be for us in the workplace. But on the other hand, if in our early lives, the people we depended on us neglected us in some way, perhaps even harmed us, maybe even abused us, we might anticipate that people at work could also be against us or could be harming us. It affects how we perceive people in the workplace. And I think that's an area that is 
hardly examined and hardly explored, while we're perfectly prepared to accept that in our intimate relationships and our personal lives, we're quite willing to accept that those relationships can be confused with relationships in our early family lives. So without years of psychotherapy, how do you recommend that listeners develop the self-awareness to know that they're being triggered by the past, understand what those triggers might be? And really the end game here is how do you teach people to successfully maneuver around them and not get triggered? Well, you know, people will get triggered. That's inevitable. So my aim is not for people not to be triggered, but to be able to tolerate these strong feelings at work, to be able to reflect and think about them rather than reacting against them. So, you know, this doesn't come easy. It's it's, it's mm-hmm. quite a long process of mm-hmm. uh, examination, examining oneself. And of course, this examination can happen in so many different forms. You know, fortunately for us, life provides endless opportunities to grow and to learn. But, uh, you know, unfortunately, many of these experiences feel deeply uncomfortable. Or painful. They're painful. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it makes us anxious. So we tend to avoid these situations or, or we brush them aside or, mm-hmm. anyway, we don't face them directly. We do what we can to avoid them. But what we can do, instead of avoiding these situations, instead of running from anxiety, which is really what we're doing all the time, trying to avoid anxiety, you know, instead, we can develop a curious mindset. So if we say to ourselves, just hang on here, just just wait a minute, this is interesting. Why am I reacting this way? Why am I reacting so strongly? So that rather than avoiding uncomfortable situations that make us anxious, we move towards the situation rather than away from it. And that's when we have an opportunity to learn. That's when we can grow. Can we do this alone? In other words, can you have the inner dialogue of what's motivating me in this moment right now and then observe it and go, oh, I'm now taking this learning from this? Or do you need someone? I'm hoping you're going to say, no, you can actually do this on your own and you should. But just to pin it down, do you need counseling in order to help people get through this? Well, let me just say, to get to that place that you're describing, where you can challenge your own perceptions, where you can challenge your own thoughts and really think about things, you know, that takes a degree of emotional maturity. And for many people, you know, years of oftentimes psychological work. So what I suggest to most people in the first instance, if you're triggered at work, if you're struck with overwhelming feelings, if you feel paralyzed by such strong feelings, it might be that you are reading the situation wrongly and that you're reacting more to kind of internal or historical events rather than events that are actually happening. In those situations, what I strongly suggest is talk to somebody Get perspective. Of course, talking to a therapist or a psychologically trained coach is really helpful, of course. But even, you know, a colleague you trust, somebody you trust, just to gain perspective, you know, to find out what is actually happening. Because what I'm suggesting that people need to do is they need to actually separate, you know, their internal world from the external world. What's actually happening? Now, some people get very stuck in their internal monologues in their head. So these stories get told round and round. They, and these stories we tell ourselves can be very convincing. 
that the boss wants to sack me. I can tell he wants to sack me. And then one can be looking for evidence in the workplace, you know, just to add to their narrative. But of course, what's sometimes required is another person to disrupt that destructive monologue and to change it into a kind of a constructive dialogue where people can begin to see and perceive things differently, where they might see potential solutions or different narratives to what is actually happening. That's more constructive. Early in my career, I had, well, my audience knows this and I've written about this in my book and sort of central to everything that I've understood about leadership boiled down to an upbringing with a father who was psychologically and emotionally abusive in really profound ways and did really great harm. And so I worked through that and figured out a way to endure and succeed. But I ended up taking a job and I ended up working for somebody who I felt like I was working for my father again. And his behavior was unbelievably erratic and really, really critical. And I saw people around him and I would ask myself, like, why are you putting up with this? Like, why would you work for somebody like this? But it was somebody who was close to me that said, you might be just a little bit more sensitive to this guy than they are. Because they think he's crazy, but they don't think he's out to get you. And you're bringing back this experience from your own upbringing and making it much more personalized. And so to your point, it was somebody outside of it who said, if you don't associate your own father with this person, you're going to be much more successful working for him. Is this kind of what you're describing? That's exactly what I'm describing. That is such a good example. And, you know, what, what you're describing is, I think, so many people's experiences, what they don't recognize when they go to work, what they bring with them is their internalized father, their internalized parents, the authority figures in their mind. And if you like, they transfer those images onto their current boss. So, you know, they might misread a situation as you were describing, you know, your boss was perhaps crazy, maybe not easy to work with, but it sounds from what you're saying that he wasn't against you. So once you could get some perspective and you needed to hear that from somebody else, of course, then you could perhaps kind of manage a situation in a much more healthy way. Am I right? Completely. Your assessment is completely accurate in the sense that I was really suffering. It was really painful to go to that place every day because I fled the experience and worked so hard to endure and overcome that early experience that to then find myself back in that all over again. And so I had really told myself, like, unconsciously to your language, that I'm working for my father again. And that was completely not true, even though their behaviors were very, very similar. That obviously, two different people. And so when I was able to get somebody to say, hey, look, just treat it like a bad boss and not your father, you're going to be much better off. It was like, it just tripped the switch. But interestingly, even though my mother died when I was very young, I do know and remember her being very encouraging and very nurturing. And I remember having the alternative experience of working for my first boss, who just seemed to see the light in everything that I did and gave me this magnificent freedom and was telling me all the time how much potential I had. And so I just worked so hard for him because I was thriving in the very kind of you know, positive emotions, encouragement, praise, appreciation that, you know, I know I need in order to succeed. But also, again, 
treating him, my boss, as if he was my mother figure, if I can say it that way. That's right. Well, if you don't mind me responding to that, because it's such a good example, you know, really what you're describing is these two internalized um, parental figures you have in yourself. One, a kind of an idealized mother, if you like, Mm -hmm. and the part of you that was kind of craving and longing to have more of that. So I would guess with this boss that you would do the sorts of things to gain his favor, to get that sort of reaction that perhaps you knew how to get that kind of positive reaction that felt very similar, if you like, to your mother. So in some ways, you can see that you carry these two internalized authority figures, if you like, but you see what some people can do. I just want to get back to what you were saying about your father. In the workplace, they're likely, or perhaps you were likely to try to avoid those sorts of relationships and situations that might trigger or give rise to those repressed feelings from your childhood, you know, because that can be quite overwhelming when they erupt in the workplace, you know, when suddenly you're dealing with your boss who's a bit crazy, maybe even a bit eccentric, maybe odd, even difficult, but certainly not abusive. But it might feel abusive to you. And that's because it's triggering these very, very early experiences. So that's how it can happen that the workplace, quite innocent or situations or interactions, can come to even re-traumatize some people in the workplace because it gives rise to repressed feelings and experiences. So the experiences that I just shared, am I unusual? Is this what we all do? Well, what we all do, I would say, is we all come to work with our internalized family. So, yes, we all do that. And, you know, as I was mentioning earlier, you know, if we have families, we were fortunate to have families that care for us with warmth and loving attention and affection. Well, we're much more likely to anticipate that people in the workplace will be for us as well. So, but, you know, if we come to the workplace and we bring with us these internalized others who might have harmed us or neglected us or treated us unfairly in any way, you know, we are likely to come to work and anticipate that people at work can treat us in the same regard. Now, of course, learning how to separate the past from the present and developing the sorts of self-awareness that gives us conscious control of these processes gives us the, the, the freedom to recognize when these feelings arise. We also then can develop the sort of maturity to recognize that these feelings are not to do with the present and to be able to tolerate the discomfort as well. Mm -hmm. Say, well, this feels uncomfortable, but this isn't actually what's happening now. So that is something that with my work, I'm encouraging people. I hope that they'll be able to grow and develop a capacity to tolerate these uncomfortable moments in the workplace, to reflect and think about them and recognize that what's happening, even though it feels like it's happening now, it actually happened then. It starts with awareness, right? And that's what this conversation is, I hope, doing for people is just like, wow, like I need to be thinking about what kinds of experiences are still influencing me. And by the way, you could have had like a supremely positive, let's say the antithesis of what I grew up with, a father who praised me, believed in me, encouraged me, you know, made me feel like I was invincible. I could have brought that into the workplace and then have been really disappointed when bosses weren't seeing what a genius I was all the time, right? So it's not just the more painful experiences of, of an upbringing that we could be bringing into work. It could be any experiences. 
Well, oh, I'm so glad you mentioned that. Something that people aren't aware of. You know, when they bring their good experiences into work, they're always anticipating that there will be good experiences, of course. You know, they think they can do no wrong. You know, if they had parents, they always told them that they could succeed at anything. And they were great. And oftentimes, these people have the same great feedback when they get to university and early on in their careers. So suddenly, they step into a management or leadership position for a while. All their lives, they've been told how wonderful they are, how great they are. And suddenly they're in a position and you know what happens? People are disappointed at them or they're even pissed off with them. Suddenly they're disliked and they can't cope with being disliked. They can't cope with being somebody who's seen as a bad person or seen as somebody who makes bad decisions. But we all know that if you're a leader, inevitably you're going to make decisions that upset people, that are going to make people unhappy. You're going to have to tolerate those feelings people have towards you. And if you're somebody that has always been told what a genius you are, that you can do no wrong, well, that's going to be really difficult for you to cope with. That's fantastic. So what's your formula for helping people to develop a deep self-belief where we don't get rocked when a boss doesn't see us as being phenomenal or when we're working for someone who is critical or erratic or unpredictable, I mean, all sorts of anything that rubs against us and our nature. What's your formula for building confidence and self-security so that we can endure those successfully without suffering a lot of pain? Well, the first thing to say is what I've been talking about so far, which is being able to separate our historic past from what's actually happening in the workplace. Let me add a few things as well to that. One of the things to say is I talk a lot to people about being able to tolerate uncomfortable feelings. Most often we think we shouldn't feel bad, we shouldn't feel uncomfortable, but inevitably life happens, particularly in the workplace, and things happen that upset us, make us angry. You know, we might even be, you know, very envious towards colleagues. We might even feel hatred towards someone. Well, this happens quite a lot, of course. So being able to tolerate uncomfortable feelings is quite crucial as well. And there's something else that I think is really important, which, again, I see quite a lot in leaders. You know, we see these leaders and managers who are overachievers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, whatever they achieve, it's never really enough. It's this kind of never enough syndrome. And, you know, oftentimes what I see is they habitually disregard their wins. So as soon as they have a success, it's forgotten, it's dropped, it's disregarded as if it never happened. So they need to make up for that loss by achieving more and achieving more. So it's this kind of never enough phenomenon that where you cannot grow in self-belief. So the question was, how do you develop self-belief? It is by not disregarding your achievements and successes, is by allowing one achievement to build on another and to hold on to those achievements, because that's where you will build on your self-belief and build on your confidence. It's oftentimes with individuals that just disregard their achievements, that these are people who really struggle with self-belief. I want to bring something into this conversation, but I have to be careful. I'm involved in a group, let's just say, with a lot of people who are in leadership roles, we'll just say that. And I have seen this demonstrated over and over and over. So I think that if people just hear the last two minutes of this conversation of what you just said about being never enough and don't dismiss your achievements, 
I think that's the price of admission for this podcast, Naomi, because it's just very, very powerful insight. And I see it so consistently in what you would say would be high achieving or at least senior level leaders. So you seem incredibly grounded. And this is going to come out of context, but something in your book that really astounded me was that you said that the mother and father of both of your parents, so all four of your grandparents, were killed in the Nazi concentration camps during World War II. Mm -hmm. And this is just indescribable loss. And I'm wondering, how did you heal this in yourself? Since we're spending all this time talking about an upbringing, you're being raised by parents who lost their own parents in the most horrendous possible way. How did you not allow anger to eat you, to destroy you? How did you manage those resentments or potential resentments? And where did you find forgiveness? Right. Well, that is a really big question. I know. Uh, I'm sorry. So, no, no, but it's, it, it, you know, it's a good one. I do talk about my family's history in, in my book and uh, do describe it quite vividly. My parents were also survivors of Auschwitz and where their parents were all gassed to death. So it is quite a big trauma that I've carried in my family. It hasn't been an easy journey. You know, when I was young, I didn't quite understand the experiences I was going through. I was feeling the grief they couldn't face. I sometimes felt the this insatiable hunger they must have felt at the camps. Um, it led to eating disorders and depression. And I was very ill at a very young age. It was many, many years ago, now 40 years ago. And at the time, people didn't understand that trauma can be transmitted from generation to generation. So there was a lot of confusion. And I was really left to find my own way. It took many, many years of examination and many different attempts at healing. So I've, I've traveled quite a journey to arrive where I am. I've certainly learned a lot in the process. And I hope I'm bringing a lot of this into my work as well, you know, my own personal experiences as well. But I just also want to respond to a question you had, because you asked me about resentments and anger. But, you know, what I felt mostly was fear. You know, at a really young age as a child, I was very aware of the cruelty in human nature. And it really frightened me. I was scared of people. Mm -hmm. I mean, people don't, hard to believe that now because I'm clearly not. But as a child, I was. I was very scared of people. and was full of fears. But I'd say over my own journey and examination in my family and history and trying to understand how this could have happened while all the world watched. You know, I did learn that, you know, our fears and anger and or hatred really is what fuels these sorts of atrocities. And I was determined not to let myself be governed by those feelings. And, uh, and, and I have <laughs> successfully. Do you think that by helping to heal others that you've healed yourself too through this work? I think so. I think so. I mean, when you sit with somebody, you know, there is a healing. And uh, I've learned so much from my clients over the years. And I'm sure they've also learned from me, although I don't bring my experiences into my work with clients, of course. But now that I've written this book, and my clients will learn something about me, as you have, <laughs> I'm sure they will kind of perhaps see me differently. But um 
But yes, yes, yes. My work has helped me and, and much of my personal journey has helped. It's hard to put a finger on what has helped. There's been so many experiences. Well, you're a wonderful example of somebody who can take something truly painful and turn it into something that elevates humanity in the greatest ways. I mean, you're just a wonderful example that you can heal yourself and that you can forgive others and you can make peace with it and make an understanding of it and not have it destroy your life. Or as Wayne Dyer said famously, you know, you didn't let the wake drive the boat. Mm -hmm. And that's a very hard thing to do for a lot of people. So congratulations and thank you for sharing that. Oh, thank you. At the beginning of your book, you said that in your work as a psychotherapist in the past 15 years that you said that people have increasingly brought work-related matters to you as a therapist. And so I'm wondering, has something happened? Are we talking more about work? Has work become more important? Or has the environment of work or the expectations of work or something about work tip us into, like, I need help to maneuver through this. So why in the last 15 years are you seeing an increase in people coming to you talking about work conflicts? Well, I think one of the things to say is people's identification with work is really strong. I think much stronger than it ever has been. So partially it's to do with people's very strong identification with their work. The other thing is the whole culture of work has changed. It's much more insecure than ever. So people are feeling a lot more vulnerable. The job for life is pretty much over. The gig economy and other movements have changed that entirely. So there's more anxiety. There's more competitiveness. People are working much, much harder. And their mental attention is focus so much on work. And so they tend to transfer their kind of early or internal conflicts. I've seen more in the workplace and even in their own families, which is extraordinary. I've certainly seen that quite a lot. And then I also have to say, I've been specializing in this area for many, many years. And as you know, also writing about it for the Financial Times as well. So that perhaps I'm also seeing it more because I am specializing in, but I think people are talking much more about work, thinking more about work, feeling very vulnerable at work. How are you helping these people? So they're coming to you and they're feeling vulnerable and they're feeling, like you said, you know, there's no job security. Work is more demanding. People are spending more time working. It's very competitive all at a time where we've made work more valuable in our lives as a you know definition of our purpose and who we are as our, our identity. But you're talking to people, people are coming into you needing help. So how are you helping them? And what advice do you have for people who are going through the same thing? Because I think it's a universal experience at work. I think so. Well, there's a few things to say. Of course, many things happen in my consulting room, but I'd say I am helping people to separate out their past from their present. So when they're feeling overwhelmed, to allow a space, you know, to work through some of the feelings that might arise in the workplace and understand where they might be coming from and where they're kind of located. You know, I also help people to view work realistically. In other words, because people's identification with work is so strong, they're also looking towards work to resolve emotional conflicts and problems. 
and inevitably they find themselves disappointed. So in other words, they're looking for the affirmation perhaps or love really that they hadn't had enough of in their early family lives, for example. So they're trying to resolve or correct some emotional hurt or harm through work. And I'm trying to encourage people to do that if you like, elsewhere. You know, work is about a lot of things. It's about being the best of who we are, perhaps about being financially successful. It's about developing our skills and talents. But you know, it's not about being loved. It's not about resolving early family traumas, you know, those personal hurts, but they need to be addressed perhaps elsewhere in intimate relationships, personal relationships, perhaps in the context of psychotherapy. So I try to help people, you know, to recognize that as well. Can you give us an example without compromising, you know, something that you've seen more than once with patients and then share it generically and how you're helping them to resolve it outside of work, as you're saying? Sure. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Well, I can talk about a man, but I think his situation is not uncommon. He always wanted to please his CEO. He was desperate for his boss's affirmation and attention, so much so that he created obstacles in his own career development. In other words, he couldn't leave. He couldn't leave his job and he couldn't develop because he was desperate to get some sort of affirmation from his boss. But really what he was seeking more deeply is the affection and love that he craved and never got from his own mother. Mm. So he was doing at work what he did in his early childhood. When his early childhood tried to be the perfect child in order to gain his mother's attention and love. And in the workplace, he became the perfect employee, desperately craving this attention and affirmation from his boss. But of course, that relationship could never fulfill those deeper emotional needs. Once he could learn to separate that out and recognize what he was actually doing, he was able to leave his job and set up his own business very successfully. And, and, And he also then later met a woman and married and now has three young children, very happily so, and learning to have his emotional needs met more in his family than in his work. And work becomes about business now for him. Work is about work and family is about family. Thank you for sharing that. I know that that's not an uncommon experience, but he clearly wasn't aware that he was doing this, right? Every day that he's trying to impress his boss, he's not saying, I didn't get what I needed from my mom, so I'm going to try to get that, extract that from my relationship with my boss. That's totally unconscious, right? Completely unconscious. But of course, it's my job to bring to people's conscious awareness what they've kept in their unconscious. And once it comes up in their unconscious, there's room to examine and explore and make choices and decisions. Wonderful. You offer this really wonderful advice when you say in your book that when individual disputes flare up, our default tendency is to assume the other party is at fault. And before leaping to conclusions that may only exacerbate matters, first consider your own part in the circumstances. You may have blind spots. And, you know, we all need this reminder every once in a while because it's so easy, particularly in this society, to just go, look at this, look at, look at this behavior and castigate it, criticize it, judge it without really taking a moment and saying, wait a minute, do I have any role in this? And I see this so much. I'm not sure whether or not you're on social media, but disputes occur needlessly. 
288 characters and somebody will misinterpret what somebody is saying and immediately is it's war. So how do we become more self-effacing is really the question I have. Oh, it's a good question. And it's a big question, but I'll do my best. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we all have defense mechanisms, as you know, that protect us from being overwhelmed by bad feelings, essentially. So we can either rationalize situations. Sometimes some defense mechanisms are quite extreme, like denial, for example, where we can pretend a problem doesn't even exist or projection, but we get rid of traits that we dislike in ourselves by locating them in other people, for example. So there are numerous defense mechanisms that we can employ to make ourselves feel less awful, basically. Now, these defense mechanisms are perfectly healthy and normal. Everybody employs some of them. But if we use them to an extreme then there's a danger that we distort reality, that we don't see things as they are. So in other words, if we project all our negative traits onto other people, okay, then we disregard that actually there are issues that we have to examine in ourselves. This is a good example. So why am I saying all this? I'm saying this because in order to be able to examine our own blind spots, we need to know what our defense mechanisms are, which defense mechanisms we employ the most, and try to inhibit that tendency. It might be that we have a tendency for all or nothing thinking. You know, we think somebody is all wonderful until they do something that disappoints us, and then suddenly they're all bad. So what if we recognize that about ourselves? We may need to learn to live in the gray areas and appreciate that people have good and bad traits, for example. Mm. So being honest with ourselves about our own defense mechanisms and how we distort situations to make us feel good is perhaps the first step. That's fantastic. Mm -hmm. By the way, I meant to ask you earlier, your book is called The Man Who Mistook His Job for His Life. What did you mean to convey through that title? Well, it means so many things. It means a lot of what we've been describing. Somebody, you know, perhaps who confuses that he can get his emotional needs met at work, for example, is one of the things I mean. And the other part, of course, is that people's over-identification with work, that to the neglect of their home and family life, you know, that happens as well. And that's an issue as well. So I basically wanted to convey this confusion that work comes to mean so much from people that it leads to a kind of confusion. I appreciate your clarification there. And it makes me wonder, well, okay, so if I'm a leader and I have a team and I know that people, not everybody in the world is going to listen to this podcast, not everyone's going to read your book. They're not going to have this insight. They're going to be bringing elements of their upbringing into the workplace and their expectations all unconscious. Are there behaviors, are there practices, are there things that managers, leaders can do to create an environment that might minimize some of that pain for people, that actually create a better workplace for them where they're not triggered as often? Everybody has to play a part in their responsibility in terms of their own self-awareness and knowing and recognizing how they act out their internal worlds in the workplace. So to some extent, managers and leaders are not necessarily responsible for what goes on in people's internal lives. They are responsible for creating a work context that's safe, where people feel that they're supported, where that they're heard, of course. But you know, inevitably, people will be triggered. And sometimes these triggers 
don't always come from external sources. Sometimes they come from internal sources. And of course, there's not much leaders can do about that, but it's very important for them to recognize that that's a possibility in people. It's very important for them to recognize that people on their teams might be misreading situations, might be at times reacting irrationally, and that there needs to be some tolerance for this irrational behavior because all of us only human by the way and we all of us bring this irrationality to the workplace it is a matter of extreme i mean there has to be a place if irrationality comes to a place where it comes to say harm other people or harm the business certainly managers and leaders do need to step in and create safety in the workplace that perhaps is a whole other conversation. Well, but you really nailed what I was hoping you would, and I didn't have the words. And when you said tolerance for this irrationality, that just creates an environment for people to be human. And that's hard for people because we tend to be binary. We want you to be rational. We want you to leave your troubles at the door. We want you to come in and you work your 10 hours and to do work all the time and be rational and be normal. And then you do something out of the ordinary or behave in a way that creates conflict with other people. Our instinct is to just say, well, there's something wrong with that person now. Let's, let's judge that person. Let's punish that person. Let's marginalize that person. Let's make sure they, they don't get the promotion we were talking about for them. And all of a sudden, they've been blackmarked when they're behaving in a way that is irrational, but necessarily is part of just normal life. And if you allow that and say, hey, you know, we saw that. I think this is sort of like a bad day or week for you. I'm going to give you some slack on this, get it together next week. That might be a way of at least acknowledging it so that the behavior doesn't continue, but also giving people enough slack that you're acknowledging you're really a good person generally, and this is not normal behavior for you, so I'm going to let it go. Well, you know, there has to be a tolerance for this sort of thing because... Everybody has it. But I don't know that we realize that. That's what's so powerful about your insight. I don't think we realize that our job is to be tolerant of this sometimes, to allow people to make mistakes, to behave in weird ways, you know, to bring their whole selves to work. You know, but, uh, you know, sometimes some of the best ideas come from this sort of erratic or irrational behavior. Of course behavior they do, too. right? Yeah. And of course, and the best leaders know that and the best leaders tolerate it because they know that their best ideas oftentimes come from people, you know, are coming from left field and uh, they know that. I could talk to you for hours about this because you've got such wonderful insights. But if somebody is 30 or 40 years old and still has a really long career ahead of them, better that they understand this now than to learn it through experience, you know, and say, oh, she's absolutely right, because I learned that in my 25 year journey. I'm hoping that people are listening to this and saying, oh, that's something I need to pay attention to now, <laughs> you know, so yeah. this is very powerful. Naomi, I'd like to take a brief break from our conversation and ask you a few questions about your personal interests, influences, and life philosophy. We happen to call this the heartbeat round because all of the questions are brief and we want you to answer each one instinctively and quickly. In other words, in a heartbeat. Are you ready to play? Yes, I am. <laughs> the greatest misconception about psychotherapy. That it can make us happy. One book you wish everyone in the world would read? Uh, it's a German book, Alone in Berlin, 
because it teaches where fear can lead. A prediction about the future you're pretty certain will come true. The only thing I'm certain about is that we can't know the future. Author, philosopher, or scientist who's had the greatest influence on you and your work? Uh, Manfred Kestevries. He's a Dutch psychoanalyst, economist, and advisor, and executive coach to leaders who's written extensively about applying psychoanalysis to organizations. Trait you admire most in other people? Uh, tolerance. Hmm. Magazine or newspaper you never miss reading? It has to be the Financial Times. Your synonym for the word heart? Um, love. Skill improvement you're working on right now? Uh, patience, but I'm not sure I'm getting very far. <laughs> A quote that captures your life philosophy, if you have one. Be yourself. Everything else is already taken. The quality that derails the most leadership careers. Self-interest. One piece of advice you'd love to give your younger self. Don't be so harsh on yourself. Something that remains high on your bucket list. One day I hope to write my memoir. Well, you've written a wonderful book, so your memoir is next to come. These are great answers, so thank you for going through this with me. Mm, pleasure. Before you go, there's just so much in your book that we didn't get to discuss, so I'm wondering if there's any key lesson that you learned in writing your book that you might want to emphasize as we close the podcast, or is there some piece of wisdom you really want our listeners pondering in the days to come, Naomi? Well, you know, what I really hope with the book and with my work is, you know, I hope people will be a bit more compassionate with themselves, essentially, not be so harsh on themselves. They see themselves struggling or even misreading situations or making the wrong move, you know, understand that it's coming from a place, you know, perhaps an unconscious place, an attempt to try to repair something or heal something in oneself. So I'm hoping people will be more compassionate with themselves. And I also hope people will be more reflective. I'd like people to think more. What I hope is that people will arrive to a conclusion and then suddenly think, that's not the end of it. Hang on a minute. That's not right. Let me think again. <laughs> and right. go to a different conclusion and think again. So I'm hoping people will develop a kind of a way just to reflect for reflection's sake, really, out of curiosity's sake. And also to kind of extend that generosity to people they work with, because everybody at work is struggling with these feelings. You know, Naomi, we go back to the beginning of the conversation when you were talking about imagination. And when I was reading your book and I started to think, this is a very unusual topic of conversation, but with my own experience, I could connect with it very quickly and, and knew that you were somebody that I absolutely had to have on the podcast. But my imagination was that it would have the depth that you brought to this. And so I'm very pleased that I imagined it the way it turned out. So thank you so very, very much. On behalf of my audience, I'm very, very grateful for all of your wisdom and insights. And thank you for joining us. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. As we close, I want to announce that our audience has grown to include listeners in 155 different countries. And that is a reminder that everything we discuss here is intentionally human and universal. 
There are so many podcasts out there for you to choose from that I want to say thank you for choosing to listen to ours. And our growth in listeners is almost exclusively dependent upon your recommending our podcast to others. So thank you in advance for telling your friends all about us. And please do much of this. We really appreciate it. And as always, I want to thank my team and key supporters, which include Ken Boynton, Susan DeRoche, Carrie Finnessy, Randy Yant, and my sound engineer and editor, Mr. Eric Oz. And until next time, I leave you with my constant reminder, when you lead from the heart, your people will follow. This is Mark C. Crowley signing off for now. Mm-hmm.